This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the you're-it moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the latest episode of Leader ReadyCast. I'm your host, Eric McNulty, and my guest today is Dr. Eric Garolnik. Dr. Garolnik is Medical Director of Emergency Preparedness at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston. He's also an Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Harvard Medical School and an Instructor of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He has spoken to many cohorts of NPLI Executive Education Programs on its experience in the Boston Marathon bombing response and has developed deep expertise on the intersection of emergency medicine, disaster preparedness, and response. Today, we're going to speak with Eric about Stop the Bleed and other efforts to put tourniquets in the hands of the general public. The goal is laudable, save lives. And this is, after all, National Preparedness Month. Recent research by Dr. Grolnick and his colleagues, however, shows that it isn't just as easy as putting kits on the wall in public spaces. Training matters. And this research shows that training matters an awful lot. Eric, welcome to Leader ReadyCast. Thanks, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. We're glad to have you with us again. Let's start. Could you give us some background on Stop the Bleed? What is it? How pervasive is it? Sure. So Stop the Bleed is really a program uh, that started with with the military. And the U.S. military recognized uh, early, really beginning in Somalia and even back to Vietnam, uh, that there were deaths on the battlefield that they could categorize as preventable. Uh, And preventable deaths were ones where uh, some interventions in the field prior to definitive care to hospital could potentially save lives. And they recognized that the bulk of these deaths were due to uncontrolled bleeding or hemorrhaging. And in particular, this was bleeding from extremities, arms or legs. And so over the course of several decades, uh, they developed programs, including trauma combat casualty care, which essentially trained medical professionals in the military to recognize life-threatening bleeding and intervene by applying pressure, packing a wound, which means putting a material inside the wound and applying pressure, uh, and or if it's an arm or a leg, applying a tourniquet. Uh, the biggest change was in the early 2000s when particular uh, unit began to train non-medical professionals in these skills and that saw a rapid decrease in preventable deaths by 67% and over the course of a decade, saving about 2,000 lives. And it was all due to the uh, ingenuity and perseverance of uh, several uh, physician leaders uh, within the armed forces. And Stop the Bleed is translating that from the military sector to the civilian sector. And that has been spearheaded by uh, individuals like Len Jacobs, uh, who is a surgeon from Hartford, who established the first Hartford Consensus in 2013 to translate these military lessons learned to civilian trauma care uh, and championed by leaders like Rick Hunt, uh, who is a graduate of NPLI, who uh, spearheaded the building of the program called Stop the Bleed, which is focused on empowering laypersons, law enforcement, and fire and EMS uh, to recognize life-threatening bleeding and intervene. 
And the reason it's so important now in the civilian society is that on average, it takes seven minutes from an initial phone call from uh, an individual uh, to 911 for EMS to arrive. And in that time, someone could bleed to death. This is all in the context of the epidemic of trauma. Trauma is the number one killer for those under 45 years of age in this country. Uh, and un uncontrolled bleeding is one of the leading causes of deaths uh, from trauma. So the idea that we can empower the public who are the first on the scene uh, to recognize life-threatening bleeding and intervene can and will save lives. So that all sounds terrific. I mean, great results in the military, good initiative to translate it to non-military professionals and now to try and roll it out to the general public. What was the big aha from your study? What did you find? So it goes back to a study that we did in March of 2018. We published that in JAMA Surgery. It was a public access tourniquet training study, PATS trial. And we essentially conducted the first uh, large-scale randomized controlled trial uh, to compare several different groups on educational modalities. Uh, to that point, uh, there had been limited evaluation of laypersons and the different programs and uh, for laypersons and how to stop the bleed. So we had four arms of people. We conducted the trial at uh, Gillette Stadium. Uh, we did it at Gillette in, in uh, New England because uh, we have a relationship with Gillette where I'm the medical director. We provide care at games and concerts. And we randomized lay people, people with no medical training, into four groups. Uh, group one walked into a room. They had a mannequin in front of them, and they simulated flying a tourniquet. And we measured where they put it, how rapidly they put it on, and the amount of tension that they applied with the tourniquet. And in the arm with no training, where they walked into a room, 16% were able to get all three factors right. In another room, we had people walk in the room and they had a flashcard that had a pictograph or a cartoon of instructions. And because those have been marketed as an alternative to training and lay people with no prior training, they got those three factors right 20% uh, of the time. In the third room, we had people walk into a room and they had a kit that looks like a defibrillator. Basically, it's a box that you open up and you press a button and it talks to you and it tells you how to put on a tourniquet because that's another product that's out on the marketplace that has been advocated as a replacement for training. And 23% of those individuals got it right. And then the last arm, we put people through a one-hour course designed by the American College of Surgeons both didactic and practical. And then in the second hour, we tested those people and 88% of those people got it right. So in the end, the first part of this study, those four arms, uh, the American College of Surgeons BCON course, 88% of people got it right. They could apply a tourniquet in the right place, the right amount of time with the right amount of tension. Uh, whereas the other three arms were statistically the same from 16 to 23%. So per people with no training to cards to an audio kit. And then we retested everybody three to nine months later, and we found that 55% of those people retained their skills. So all of those groups, after their initial testing, went through the ACS's BCON course, and then we retested them and found that there's about a 45% drop-off or 55% retention, which is pretty good. So from this, uh, the next big question we had is, you know what, there are a lot of tourniquets out on the market, and there are probably over a hundred different tourniquets that are out on the market and there's no sort of FDA authorization or registration for these devices. 
there's no clear guidelines. We don't know what works and what doesn't work. Uh, the army and the military in particular has, has uh, spent some time researching these and are about to come out with some recommendations based on their testing. Uh, but to date, we have limited knowledge. And so we have a disconnect now between there's some education out there, but there's a lot of tools out there. And so our question was, let's say we put everybody through this ACS BCon course uh, for one hour, which we've proven has been effective. Could they use all the different types of tourniquets or can they only use the tourniquet that's in their course? This is the difference between an AD and CPR, right? Uh, whereas CPR, you just need your hands. Uh, and we've moved to compressions only. And with AEDs, they're designed that somebody with no prior training can walk up to it and press a button and it can tell you exactly what to do. So, and that's the difference between a tourniquet and these, and these other devices. So what we did is we did a crossover randomized trial that was also published uh, recently in JAMA Surgery. And uh, that trial was called the Effectiveness of the American College of Surgeons Bleeding Control Basic Training Among Lay People Applying Different Tourniquet Types, a randomized clinical trial. It was published in July 2019. We put 102 people, all lay persons, no prior medical training, through a one-hour course, and then we uh, randomized them. So they were then tested on four different types of tourniquets and an improvised tourniquet. So what we found was that, no surprise, that uh, with the CAT, the combat application tourniquet, which is the device that's taught in the course, that 92.2% of those people got it right. Again, they put in the right location, the right amount of time, the right amount of tension. However, there was a significant fall off with the next closest type of tourniquet called the soft T. Uh, the soft T is a very similar device, but the success rate was 68.6%. So there's a pretty good chunk of people, regardless of having the BCon training, were not successful with the soft T. And then there's a big drop off between two other types of tourniquets, the SWAT stretch wrap and tuck tourniquet and the RAT rapid application tourniquet. The SWAT is uh, has instructions written on it and only 11.8 percent of those uh, individuals were able to successfully place the SWAT and only again 11.8 percent were successful in placing the rat and then the final group we had was an improvised tourniquet now improvised tourniquets are, are recommended against because uh, they could actually exacerbate bleeding if they're not applied correctly uh, and can cause some issues uh, and in this case, what we did is we gave people all the respective tools that they would need. So in the ideal situation where you would have a dowel and a rope or in a belt and all the pieces you potentially would need, uh, they were given that and they actually were able to apply these successfully 32.4% of the time, which is much higher than we expected. So I think that the big, the big pieces here that to take away are if you train someone on one type of tourniquet right now, you train someone on one type of tourniquet. They're not really transferable to other types of tourniquets. And that's one of the challenges of taking this from a military construct where potentially everyone can purchase and utilize the same type of tourniquet to an open marketplace construct where there are a lot of different tourniquets and there are a lot of different educational programs and how do we match the two? Yeah, you, you get quite a number of, of takeaways there, which I thought are really significant. I mean, one is we started with a great idea that had some efficacy in the military but then you've, what you've shown is that you can go from 16 to maybe 22% if you give people just minimal instruction, either audio or flashcards. Uh, but it jumps up tr dramatically if you, if you get training. And I guess the question there would be is, you know, how many people are actually going to go through that course? How many people actually have gone through CPR or other courses? 
And then to your last point that you say, if you, because you're trained on one tourniquet, it doesn't mean you know how to use all tourniquets. Just like when you're trained to fly one airplane, doesn't mean you're trained to fly all airplanes. Um, yet you may walk out of a training thinking, okay, I know how to do this. I'm good to go. Yes, that's true on your combat application tourniquet if that's what you've been trained on, but not necessarily a stretch, wrap, and tuck uh, if that's what's available on scene. So where do you hope this goes? I mean, what, what, do you, what do you think of the implications here for, for trying to bring together, as you say, the going from the military where everybody had standard equipment, standard training to an open, more open market environment where it's much more free form and there's a lot more choices? Yeah, I mean, these are great points. It's all about scalability. And this is the challenge going from a good idea to actual implementation and all the different forces involved in, in a public health campaign. The first piece, uh, you know, demonstrated that one educational modality worked, the others were not so great. Um, but uh, we still think that there's potential. There's been some other studies uh, done uh, by colleague Craig Goolsby out of USIS, the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences, that has shown some promise with uh, phone-based applications, which would be similar to this idea of audio kits and flashcards. Uh, and they've seen some better numbers after initially showing uh, the application to someone and then a few months later testing them using the application. Uh, so, so we think that this has got to be multimodal, right? It's got to be some classroom stuff, some online stuff, some phone app stuff, and some combination of initial training and refresher training. And, and to your point, you know, CPR, AEDs, that's a great model for us. And you can see the evolution, how it's gone from time rescue breathing in association with a certain amount of compressions. And now it's for the layperson, it's strictly compressions because no one can remember the combination of two breaths, four breaths, 30 compressions, et cetera. So we, we have to think about the lessons learned from that uh, campaign and how we can translate it, translate it here. But I think we've got to take it on in a variety of different ways. Uh, I think that's one of the one of the bigger pieces. The other piece is around this issue of the tools at bay. So ultimately, what we think will work is the old, you know, keep it simple rule and trying to streamline what is available, what products are available and make sure that those products are A, effective and B, people can be trained in them. So for example, if you, you know, if you're going to purchase equipment, let's say for your building that you work at, Eric, right? And you're at your facility and you say, we want to do stoppably for our employees. If you put them through one course of training, then you would want to ensure that the tools that are, are put there, like publicly accessible kits, have the same type of equipment that they learn during a course. Uh, so we would want to avoid a mismatch between the education and the actual tools that they would use. Um, and the challenge is, is now as you know, more and more places airports, stadiums, schools are purchasing equipment, are people being trained in the right skills and tools that they would use that are found at these, at these locations? And, and I think we've got to do a fair amount of work on having some very clear guidelines on what types of tourniquets are effective, uh, what types of tourniquets are being taught, and what types of tourniquets should be put in uh, public places. And any sense of, of what the uptick has been on, on training? Uh, I, know the, I know these things have, have gotten more popular. The people are buying the equipment. Do you have any sense of how much people are willing to invest in training to go along with it? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I don't know the answer. I know that uh, ACS, from last we spoke, they've, 
They're close to a million people have gone through the course. They may have popped over a million uh, in the last few weeks. They've got uh, many instructors that have been trained and many of those instructors, the bulk of the instructors are uh, EMS and others include uh, physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, a lot of different allied health professionals, but EMS has done the bulk of the work. So there are, uh, the question though is, are organizations willing to pay for this? Uh, are people doing this pro bono? And many organizations are volunteering their time to do this, uh, as we have done in many cases. And uh, the, the question is, can we, can we sustain this? And, and then the second piece is the logistics piece to purchase equipment for uh, their various buildings. Some people have done it through grants. Uh, some people have done it individually because they think it's the right thing to do. So, for example, Gillette Stadium. But uh, there are some movements within several states around health policy to advocate for public placement of these kits, uh, as we've seen with AEDs. I think that's the next thing that we're starting to see is uh, legislation that would support public placement of kits and then require at a minimum, uh, an individual within that building to be trained. Uh, so we're starting to see some movement on that. There's a bill right now that's being moved forward within Massachusetts, for example, on just that very, very item. Yeah, you know, one of my personal hobby horses in this area is I would love to see more private sector organizations as part of thinking of themselves as a prepared organization would offer this training, offer CPR, offer a variety of first aid public safety training as an employee benefit and say, you know what, if we're going to be a prepared organization, we need 10% of our people to know how to do this or 15% know how to do that. Um, so that it becomes part, becomes ingrained in the organization and becomes something they offer a value because it makes them not only more prepared as an organization within their four walls, but it makes their employees much more valuable in the community should they encounter an event outside of the workplace setting as part of a predictable surge. And, and so, um, if any of our listeners out there have access to uh, training managers and those kind of people, I would love to get them to advocate for that because I think it really is, you know, we do drills, we do plans, we do tabletop exercises, but sometimes it's the nuts and bolts of actually knowing how to use this kind of equipment and how to apply basic first aid that makes you much better immediate responders should something happen. Yeah, yeah I think that that would certainly be powerful uh, for different organizations to to advocate for, for this type of training. And, and it'd be interesting to understand if, you know, CPR again has been around for 40 or so years, even longer, 50, 60 years, uh, how have organizations uh, supported that movement? Have they required a certain percent of their employees to, to undergo CPR training? Yeah, I, I'm guessing it's very low because I think people, they, it looks to be in so that nice to do, but not have to do bucket versus the, hey, we really want to be ready. But given the number of organizations that feel the impact of be it workplace accidents or, you know, severe active shooter or other adverse incidents, uh, having people trained and ready to go is, is a big part of being ready to, uh, ready to respond. The other piece is, you know, we, uh, the studies we've done have primarily focused on tourniquets, but the other key elements of the program are applying pressure to a wound and someone's bleeding or packing a wound. Again, that means taking a material, putting it inside of the wound and applying pressure. Uh, so that's the other piece here is to demonstrate the efficacy of, of those uh, two interventions and not, 
and have that not be lost in the campaign. Uh, there's a lot of focus on tourniquets, but uh, there are many more wounds uh, that are amenable to those two interventions, pressure and packing. Uh, so we really want to ensure that, that uh, laypersons, the public know that that's part of the campaign. And those are things that they're much more likely to do and they don't really need any equipment to do. So what's next in your research? What else do you help to do uh, in, in this area to continue to show what works and what doesn't and what we can do about it? Well, at the end of February, we hosted the first national Stop the Bleed Research Consensus Conference. We had about 45 experts, uh, subject matter experts, uh, professional society leaders, and uh, funding agencies that convened for two days. Uh, we used a modified Delphi approach to identify what, what the top priorities are for research. What are the key gaps? What are the questions we need answered? We're working on uh, publication of that uh, right now. And that really is a, a framework for you know, research in the space for the next decade or so to, to bridge that gap of uh, reducing preventable deaths in civilian trauma systems. That's great. And, and do you see, and I don't mean to, to jump around here, but I'm, as I'm listening to you, I'm processing and thinking about the, uh, the many good issues that you raise. Has there been any talk of certifying certain facilities and say like a you know, Gillette Stadium that they could then say, hey, not only do we have this equipment, we've trained our people, we're good to go, that, to get, let them get some uh, public-facing benefit out of put the, putting the investment into making this happen? Sure. Uh, it's a great question that, you know, a stadium would have a stamp of approval that they are the, a stoppably verified stadium and what, what's valuable for them, both from, uh, from an outward facing perspective, from a public affairs perspective, and more importantly, from an internal readiness perspective. Uh, it's a great question. You know, we, we, we said that Gillette was the first stop the bleed stadium. Uh, but what does that, you know, what does that really mean? There's no certificate. So it's a good idea to sort of that we could bring back and, and ask the question uh, and maybe come up with something that might be helpful. Uh, and be great to have, you know, private sector leaders in that conversation to see what's valuable to you. Uh, if you invest in this, what, what, what are your needs to get out of this type of relationship and readiness? Yeah, because I, I think of, you know, again, you know, we had the sad incident uh, last month with the shooting in, in Walmart in El Paso, um, there's a large organization where it has lots of frontline employees who can be re ready to go. And you go to places like Home Depot or Lowe's where people have their sort of specialized training on their vest. They've got little badges and pins. And it's usually about electricity and plumbing or uh, whatever uh, to be able to add to that that you're prepared, uh, be it CPR, stop the bleed, whatever the specialty happens to be. It's, a, I would think, a great way to engage employees a great way to show the public you care and make people feel safer uh, in, in your environment um, and, and just a, uh, another way to be a good citizen. But I, I also know it competes with a lot of other priorities, uh, yeah. particularly when talking about private sector organizations. Who else out there is, is doing this research along with you? Uh, who's, who's been involved in this? Well, so we have a great local team that's been doing a, a lot of this work. Uh, that's out of our Center for Surgery and Public Health. That is a combined program between Brigham Women's Hospital and uh, Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Um, there are a fair amount of uh, faculty, fellows, residents that have been doing this, this work. Uh, and so we have a group here. 
Uh, I mentioned earlier, Craig Goolsby has been doing a lot of this uh, leading research in uh, USIS, the Uniform Services of University Health Sciences, that's a military's medical school. Uh, Len Jacobs has uh, led this campaign uh, from the outset and started the first uh, Hartford Consensus, which was in 2013, which was the beginning of Stop the Bleed. <clears throat> and there are many leaders within the military sector that have done a fair amount of work uh, in this space. Brian Eastridge, Todd Rasmussen, John Holcomb, uh, Frank Butler, who's really the father of all of, of these uh, efforts, Russ Cotwell. So uh, the list goes on and on. It's been uh, each each person, each team is coming at it from a little bit different perspective. And it's really encouraging to see all of the passion and the motivation to answer these hard questions. Well, and it's great to see that people are being brought together. I know Len Jacobs has been doing this for a number of years, but to be able to see it continue to bring researchers together to lay out an agenda so people can focus their efforts, coordinate their efforts where it makes sense, and hopefully get us to the best possible outcome. Now, for our listeners, we will post links to the various articles that Eric mentioned in this broadcast. So if you want to go read the original article and see that, I think it's really important to take away from this that uh, if you are involved in advocating for Stop the Bleed, that you advocate for training alongside the devices, and as you are talking to people in your communities and uh, sharing information about this, really emphasize the importance of getting training, and not just general training, but training on the right device, because now there is uh, this validated research that shows it makes an enormous difference, and the, and the outcomes you're, we're all hoping to get to, fewer preventable deaths, is really uh, the way to achieve it is to get people trained on the right devices, the devices they're going to use, and in a way that that training sticks. Um, Eric, I want to thank you for coming by today and, and sharing this with us. I think it's, it's incredibly important. As, as you say, trauma is the, the major cause, the number one cause of death for those under 45. We need to be more prepared as a society. You never know when that you're at moment's going to happen and something, ha you know, something happens, you've got to turn around and act. You want to know what you're doing so that you uh, get to the best possible outcome. So thank you for coming by today. Thanks to all of our listeners for, for being with us. And until our next episode of Leader ReadyCast, prepare for the moment when you're in. And thank you, Eric. Eric, thanks so much. Talk to you soon. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.